This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. On the podcast today, we're going to hear some words from a man named Bowler, whose family, his ancestors, had to do with Amsterdam's famous Bowler's Brewery. We're also going to let you listen to several of my Focus on History columns, which run now in the Daily Gazette and the Amsterdam Recorder, starting with the Pichat connection. In the month of uh, August, the city of Amsterdam recognized Pichat as its twin city. Many Italian-Americans who settled in Amsterdam's West End came from Pichat a small southern Italian hilltop community in the Campania region of Salerno province. One of the Pichatani, that's what you call a resident of Pichat, one of the Pichatani who settled in Amsterdam was Anello Robusto, who migrated when he was 16 in 1904. He became an American citizen in 1913 and married Michalina Pucci, also from Peshat, two years later. Anello opened a barber shop and also sold paint, print, and uh, glass products on West Main Street in Amsterdam. He and his wife learned how to set type for the printing business. Michalina also worked sewing dress gloves in her home for a local glove manufacturer. Anello taught himself English with the help of the Sears catalog, looking at pictures and putting the names together. He found that education was free in America, and he took night classes in English. He was able to buy a two-story house behind his shops, They raised their family in the house and expanded the building, renting two flats and five garages. The family of eight lived in that house until building a new house on Stewart Street in 1941. St. Agnello of Naples, also known as Anello the Abbot, and this is my deduction, I believe that Anello Robusto was named in honor of the saint, Anello, Anello the Abbot. Well, the saint is venerated by the Piscitani in Italy, and his feast day in December also is celebrated in Amsterdam. And there used to be a St. Agnello's Club in the Mohawk Valley city. The Robustos and many other Italian-American residents in the city's West End tended vegetable gardens on the fertile flat land between the railroad tracks and Mohawk River Erie Canal. They built poles for pole beans and lattices to keep tomatoes off the ground. They grew lettuce, zucchini, and dandelions, much as their ancestors had done in Italy. They bought boxes of grapes and made their own wine. Anello Robusto's name is inscribed on an altar of a church in Pichat, Italy, because he raised money at Amsterdam church festivals, I believe some thousands of dollars uh, for the Italian church. A great believer in education, Anello was proud that his 
oldest daughter, Rosalind Robusto Murphy, became a school teacher. The family's four sons all served in World War II and survived the war. Ralph, Jerry, Alfred, and Richard. They are now all deceased, including uh, Rosalind Robusto Murphy. Rita Robusto Musilli, the youngest daughter, worked at uh, St. Mary's Hospital and provided information for this article. Rita's uh, late husband was a friend of mine named Frank Musilli. They had five children. In his later years, Frank Musilli provided weather data to local media, including my Amsterdam morning radio show. There are many Amsterdam residents descended from Pichatani. One I should mention is my high school classmate and high school reunion organizer, Vicky Petrosino Celesito, whose father was from Pichat. Others include Mayor Michael Cinquanti, the Isabels, San Salones, Catinas, Tambascos, Peps, and the Capuccios. It was a man named Guy Capuccio, who many years ago now first to put me on uh, to the connection between uh, Pichat and Amsterdam, New York. The Pichat connection even led to theatrical hijinks in 1967 during the Amsterdam Recreation Department production of My Fair Lady. According to Jan Swanker Gibson, who was there, actor Eddie Schwartz as Zoltan Karpathy was supposed to say to Phil Brocky, who was playing Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady, I have made your name famous in all the great capitals of Europe, London, Paris, Rome. Swanker Gibson said, instead, Schwartz changed one word and said, I have made your name famous in all the great capitals of Europe, London, Paris, Pichat. The audience roared with laughter. The director, the late Bert DeRose, was in stitches backstage. When asked if he recalled the incident, DeRose later said, Yes, I do. And I gave them both, you know what? I always stayed with the script in respect to the playwrights. DeRose was well aware of Amsterdam's connection with Pichat, although his own family came from the Italian province of Benevento. The Historian's Podcast continues with stories from my weekly column in the Daily Gazette and the Amsterdam Recorder, Focus on History. This one is called Carpet Mill Tales. It was a rough Atlantic crossing for James Kinden, an English weaver who sailed for America in the 1890s. Kinden wrote, On Sunday, we encountered a very heavy gale of wind and rain. The rain was so strong that it blew the waves mountains high. Time after time, the waves came, sweeping the deck clear. Kinden kept a journal on his trip across the Atlantic. He also brought along a fiddle for entertainment and plenty of eatables for the trip, including ham, biscuits, jam, brandy, 
and ginger ale. In America, Tinden found carpet-making work at Burlington Carpet Mills in Mount Holly, New Jersey, but he left in 1892 to join the ranks of carpet workers in Amsterdam, New York. Tinden faced hard times in 1893, but started weaving in 1894. He kept track of the lengths of carpet he wove each day and time spent servicing the loom. He translated the pay he received in dollars into English pounds. He kept a record of the girls he courted. The 1910 city directory listed James Kinden, Weaver, and his wife Ada living at 12 Eagle Street in the East End, and that would have been uh, near the Shuttleworth Brothers factory. By that time, immigrants from Poland, Italy, Lithuania, Russia, and elsewhere were flocking to Amsterdam. By the 1930s, the Kindens had moved up in the world. They were living at 55 Stewart Street. James Kinden was still on Stewart Street when he retired from his duties as a weaver at Mohawk Carpet Mills in 1955 when he was 81. He had worked 62 years at the plant, founded by brothers from England named Shuttleworth. Shortly before Kinden's retirement, Amsterdam's other major carpet factory, Bigelow Sanford, had announced it was leaving the city later that year. Kinden's son, J. Artisan Kinden, had become an assistant superintendent of Mohawk's Tapestry Division. A tapestry was a kind of rug. He died, the son, in May of that year. Father and son were active members of the Masons. The Kindens worshipped at Second Presbyterian Church. James Kinden died in April 1957 at age 83. His wife Ada lived into the 1960s and was last reported living at a nursing home in Penyan, New York. Women work too. Anne Piconi, executive director of the Walter Elwood Museum, said you can learn a lot from the dress, jewelry, and demeanor of women photographed in the city's mills. Piconi said one of her favorite pictures shows a woman tending a machine, looking at the camera, sporting a bracelet and high heels. I make jokes saying the woman seems to be saying she would rather be in another place at another time, said Piconi. Women only could have certain jobs in the factory. Piconi said she never heard of a woman carpet weaver. Women often were creelers. Creelers made sure the loom was tied into yarn spindles or bobbins. My grandmother had a little knife around her finger to cut and then tie the yarn, Piconi said. Her grandmother added that weavers sometimes were mean men. Women worked when they were sick, when they were pregnant, Piconi said. They tried to hide their conditions from the bosses. They only had stools to sit on, no backs. If a woman was ill, 
other women would cover, letting the woman who was sick lie down on the factory floor on top of her coat. Camaraderie developed over time. Amsterdam native Alberta Zirak von de Caro said, When I was young, my aunts would bring me yarn dolls that were made from scraps of wool. They lied about their ages and started working in the factories when they were youngsters to help support the family. I still have a discarded bolt of yarn. They even showed me how to determine a fine woolen rug from a poorly woven one. These women were pioneers who didn't complain of hardships. On this particular episode of Historian's Podcast, we're listening to several stories from Focus on History, my weekly column, which runs in the Daily Gazette and also in the Amsterdam Recorder. This one was geared for and used around Labor Day. Amsterdam woman was pioneer union leader. An Irish immigrant woman who lived and worked in Amsterdam became a national union leader in the 19th century. Leonora Carney Berry wrote, quote, Day after day, I sat sewing men's trousers for five cents a dozen. Leonora was born in 1849 in Ireland in Cork. Her parents, John and Honor Carney, uh, fled the Irish potato famine and settled in Pierpont in northern New York, where her father worked a farm. When Leonora was in her early teens, her mother died. Her father married a woman five years older than his daughter, and the two women did not get along. Leonora took lessons from the head of the Colton Girls School nearby and earned a teaching certificate at age 16. Leonora taught school for seven years. In 1871, she married a house painter and musician from Potsdam, William Barry. William also was from Ireland and came to Canada when young. He served nine years in the British Army. The Berries moved from town to town seeking work. They settled on Amsterdam's Voorhees Street with their three children. William Berry died in April 1881. The obituary of the 38-year-old said he had suffered lung ailments. He was a well-known musician and composer who led the Amsterdam Cornet Band and played in the 13th Brigade Band. The Berry's three-year-old daughter also died that same year. Now a widow with two young sons, Leonora could not return to teaching because only single women were acceptable candidates for teaching positions. She went to work in Amsterdam's booming factories, including Pioneer Hosiery, a knitting mill. It was located on the south side of Main Street between Market and Church Streets. In 1884, Barry joined the women's branch of the Knights of Labor in Amsterdam. There was a knitting mill strike and management lockout of that union 
1886, mill owners eventually prevailed in ousting the Knights, at least temporarily. In 1886, Barry attended a Knights of Labor convention in Richmond, Virginia, and was named to the new Department of Women's Work. Leaving her children with relatives, she traveled the country. There was criticism of her high moral tone from some union leaders in opposition to her idea that women should be full-fledged union members. The Biographical Dictionary of Notable American Women described her as tall, with a commanding presence, contagious smile, gifted with Irish humor, blue eyes, and spontaneity. Barry advocated for equal pay for women and fought against child labor. She spoke against sexual harassment, saying men used the power of their positions to debauch women and boys. In 1888, at Susan B. Anthony's invitation, Barry spoke to the 40th anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention for Women. In 1890, Leonora married Obadiah Reed Lake, a printer from St. Louis, Missouri. Leonora didn't think that married women should work outside the home unless there was economic necessity, so she resigned from the union. Known as Mother Lake at the end of her life, she lived until 1923 and was popular on the lecture circuit as an advocate for temperance and women's rights. She took part in a successful women's suffrage campaign in Colorado in 1893. That year, she delivered her popular speech called The Dignity of Labor to the Columbian Exhibition in Chicago. After marrying Lake, Leonora lived in St. Louis until 1916, when she moved to Manuka, Illinois, to live with her husband's sister. A baseball fan, she visited Chicago to see ball games. She died of cancer in 1923. Retired Montgomery County historian Jacqueline Daly Murphy was instrumental in getting an historical marker honoring Barry, placed at the east end of what we call the Mall in downtown Amsterdam in 1998. Next on this edition of the Historian's Podcast, Brewing Beer in Amsterdam, New York. Amsterdam had its own brewery back in the day. It was called Bowlers. And I have been able to talk with a man named Philip Malcolm Bowler of Burlington, Vermont. I believe the great-grandson of the founder of Bowler's Brewery. Philip Malcolm Bowler said he never got the family's beer-making recipes or any of the money? Well, Harry Fitch Bowler uh, started the brewery, but his family, or the Bowler family, came to the United States in 1859. Uh, uh, excuse me. The brewery was started in Amsterdam in 1889. Mm-hmm. The Bowlers have a long history uh, 
of brewmasters in various breweries. I have been to Ipswich, England, from which Herr, uh, Henry Bowler, the, my great-great-grandfather, uh, was the brewmaster of the Tally Cobalt Brewery in Ipswich, England. Mm-hmm. And he came to uh, Troy, New York, to work in a brewery there, which I never found out which one, but I suspect that it must have been one of the English breweries because of his experience with all of the English uh, beers and ales. He had uh, three sons that he brought with him, and I think two daughters, and the other two great-granduncles of mine, John and Alexander Bowler, started in, I believe, around 1888, a Bowler Brothers Limited brewery in Worcester, Mass. And by the turn of the 20th century, for a few years, it was the largest brewery in New England. Um, My great-grandfather, Harry Fitch Bowler, opened the brewery in Amsterdam, and I have gone through the probate records and uh, believe that there were about 12 buildings on that site on uh, West Main Street in Amsterdam, the main brewery building is still standing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I, I never got any of the formula or any of the money, but one of the things that I really wish that I had got was mm-hmm. the formula from the paint that he put up there on the building, which well over a hundred years, you can still see Bowler's Brewery on the building. That's one, one uh, of those what they call ghost signs, right? When you sort of like a ghost sign, but he yeah. can still see it after a, well over a hundred years. Now you said I he started think, the brewery in 1889. Maybe I'm on the wrong track, but I I thought that he first built a brewery building out of wood, but then they had burned down, or they burned down before 1899. It may have, but I was not aware of that. Okay. Uh, uh, one of the big secrets to his success in brewing was that he got a 99-year lease on the spring. <clears throat> that today is uh, in a garage on Carmichael Street, one block behind Main Street. And that spring is still there with, I suspect, ultra-pure water. Yes. Well, in fact, I'm searching here. Somewhere in my <laughs> looking up things, I came across the actual name of the spring. Maybe I'll find it as we, as we go on. Also, I have seen a uh, listing on a beer website of some of the different names they used for uh, the product of Bowler's Brewery and its successor. Unfortunately, a lot of the, all the dates come from the 1930s, which is way far ahead in our uh, story, and I believe long after the demise of the original Harry Bowler. But to get to the point, some of the names were Amsterdam Ale, Amsterdam Half and Half, Amsterdam India Pale Ale. You kind of get the picture there, all about Amsterdam. Yeah, they, I have several of the bottles, and I have two oval beer serving trays with uh, Bowler's Brewery on it. Uh, I have talked to some very elderly people. I'm 77, so these people were older than me. And they have told me that when they were kids, their parents sent them to the brewery with a pail to get 
beer and a pail. So the, the bottling and capping came sometime after uh, the brewery. A lot of it was put into uh, wooden kegs, and the kegs were, you know, taken to bars where a tap was put into them. Mm-hmm. And your great-grandfather, Harry Bowler, uh, operated the brewery until his death, which I believe was in 1917? That is correct. And then my grandfather and his brother took over the brewery, but with all of the Bowler fortune and brewery fortune, Prohibition came along, and that was just about the end of the the Bowler era in the breweries. Yeah, because they kept going, supposedly putting out other products, but I've noted in a couple of uh, history publications I frequently uh, consult, like um, uh, Mr. Cinquanti's birthday blog, Michael Cinquanti, has uh, your great-grandfather's birthday noted, which was January 23rd, I might point out, uh, saying that there were a number of raids on the bowler business uh, during uh, the 1920s, during Prohibition. I, I was not aware of that. So if you've got something like that, why ship it along in an email? <laughs> uh, but I know they, uh, at one point in time, I think both of the breweries went into soda production. I'm not quite sure that they were as skilled in that area or there was as much profit in that area. This is an official welcome to what we call, as part of the Historian's Podcast, the History Mystery. Here it is. One of Amsterdam's longest-lasting faded ghost signs, maybe that in itself needs an explanation, but faded ghost signs proclaimed Bowler's Brewery on the wall of the former brewery. The sign could be seen. The sign could be seen on Eagle Street in Amsterdam's East End, Route 5 in Amsterdam's West End, on Locust Avenue in the city's Park Hill, or on Florida Avenue on the south side. Bob will have the answer in just a second or two. And Dave made a query about the uh, word, the phrase ghost sign. Well, that's a sign that was painted years ago, but it, it lasts, and it's just still there. You often find ghost signs on old buildings. Well, let me talk about the Historian's Podcast Fund Drive. We've raised close to $4,000 so far. We still have we still have a long way to go to reach our $7,000 goal by year's end, which is really a short time away. Two ways to donate. Go to our website, bobcudmore.com. Look for a blue button for the GoFundMe campaign. Press the button and you'll be able to use your credit card to make a donation. Or send a check made out to Bob Cudmore to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Now the answer to this week's history mystery. One of Amsterdam's longest lasting faded ghost signs proclaims Bowler's Brewery on the wall of the former brewery. This sign could be seen on Eagle Street in Amsterdam's East End, on Route 5 in Amsterdam's West End, on Locust Avenue in the city's Park Hill, or Florida Avenue on the south side. The answer is 
the Bowler's Brewery building sign was painted on a building on Route 5 in Amsterdam's West End. Bowler's Brewery was going strong in 1912 when it took out a newspaper ad that stated, For the sake of the health of everyone in your family, take my advice. Tell your mother to always have in the house a supply of Amsterdam brew, bottled lager beer, and still ale. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, produced by Dave Green. I'm Bob Cudmore.